Well, great to be here with you all. God bless you. I'm so glad that you made the journey, you made the trip, you're investing in your marriage. I don't know what it is about marriage retreats. I don't know if this is everybody's experience, probably not this church. I'm talking about other churches that have this battle. Whenever you go to a marriage retreat, there's always warfare uh, leading up to it. And um, maybe you had some on the way. Maybe. Some of you? couple of you. Maybe it's just me and my wife. I don't know. I just think all of us, you go through it. Nobody wants to admit it. Like, you know, you just try to make your way through it. And there's a reason for that. It's because there's a battle. There's a fight against what we're, what we're doing here. The devil hates what we're doing here. And so he opposes it. And yet God has a plan. God has a purpose. And I love the theme that Pastor Zach gave to us out of Matthew chapter 7, a verse that you'll hear a lot about, no doubt, this weekend, but where it says, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. This weekend, these times that we're going to be together, we're going to hear some things. We're going to read some things, but it's one thing to hear it, and it's another thing to do it. It's one thing to think because I've heard it, I've actually done it, when in reality, we haven't done it until we have. And so may God help us to receive the word of God and to really take in what God wants to say to us and our marriages would be strengthened. Would you pray with me? Father, I do thank you for the privilege, the opportunity to gather here with our brothers and sisters. And Lord, we do believe that you have things that you want to impart to us. Lord, I pray our hearts would be humble. I pray we'd be teachable. Maybe even hear some things that are uncomfortable. But Lord, that we would receive it and that you would use it. And Lord, you would strengthen our marriages in these days, Lord. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a pastor that was visiting a fourth grade Sunday school class to talk about marriage as part of his lesson. And so he asked the children in the class, Who knows what the Lord says in his word about marriage? And immediately one boy replied, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. (laughs) And the truth is, for some of us, you know, when we got married, we just, we don't really know everything that there is to know about being married. So much of knowing about marriage is being married. You can read books, you can attend seminars, you can go to classes, but the fact is when you're married, that's when you really find out what it's all about. You know, I can recall like it was yesterday driving in a janitorial cart, a bright red cart. It was the end of elementary school lunchtime there at the church that I was working at. And my job at the end of the day was to pick up all of the trash of the children, put it on my cart, and take it to the large dumpsters. And as I was driving in my cart that particular day with my coworker, I looked up on the second story building. It was a two-story building. And there was a young woman walking across on the balcony to her classroom. She was a teacher. And I said to my friend, "Uh, who is that? And he said, "There's, there's no way. That's... That's just out of your league. And I said, brother, the Bible says to have faith. And uh, you have not because you ask not. So anyways, that was so long ago. And I remember just 19 years old. And at that point in my life, I really wasn't looking for a relationship. I had just come back to a relationship with Jesus. And that's really what I wanted. 
I wasn't looking to date anybody or, or I just, I, know, I knew I needed the Lord. And unbeknownst to me, the Lord had me meet my wife. I didn't know what God had. And, and my wife and I, we talked for a little bit. I, I met her at church one morning. We went out to breakfast on this first time I met her. Actually, what happened was I, I introduced myself to her. I told her I served in the high school ministry. I was the chairman. That is, I set up the chairs and took them down <laughs> after and uh, trying to impress her, you know. No, I wasn't. I wasn't impressive. But I... But then one particular day I went to church and I went to second service. I went in the, in the foyer and I was there and she was there. And I was like, oh my goodness, she's in the foyer. And then I went up to say hello to her and she gave me a hug. And that was something. And, uh, and then she went and sat with somebody else. And I just, uh, so the next week I went back to the same spot. I thought maybe lightning will strike twice. And I, I went back and she wasn't there. And I was like, oh, well. So I went up to do my job setting up the chairs and she walked in and started setting up chairs next to me. I was like, oh, a chairwoman. Like, we're setting these up together. Like, and the whole time we're sitting there, and I was like, man, I gotta, I, is, I, the guy's talking, the pastor's talking, the kids are all around. Like, who cares? Like, how am I going to ask this girl out? Is that biblical? Can I do that? I mean, I'm walking close with Jesus now. Is that good? Should I do that? We are co-workers? I don't know. So we went out to breakfast. I said, do you want to go out to breakfast? We went out to breakfast. And after breakfast, uh, I said, hey, you want to walk around the mall? It was across the street. We walked around the mall. As we were walking around the mall, I said, hey, you want to go to a movie? This is all on the same day. And she said, sure, what's playing? And I, it's so appropriate. Now that I look back, Beauty and the Beast. Can you imagine how appropriate? That was the first movie we saw together. And our lives have paralleled that since. She being the beauty, obviously the beast, uh, changing, transforming in the process. But 19 days later, I asked her to marry me. And uh, she said yes. And then six months later, we were married and we'd gone through all our premarital classes. We learned all the practical things you need to learn. Then, we, then came the wedding day. And I remember it over 31 years ago, standing there in my tuxedo, looking down the aisle of the church that I had walked down many times in my life to go to chapels, to go to church plays, to graduate junior high, graduate high school, walk down that same aisle. This time my bride is walking down the aisle with her dad and he hands her off to me and we make our way up the stairs and... Standing there, exchanging vows, I sang her a song that I wrote for her on that day, which was kind of special. Um, and during that time, we were taking communion, and, uh, and when we were taking communion, one of my best friends fainted in my wedding. Just, it was like 10 stairs, and he just, just down. He's like 6'5", and just, just flat out, just fell, fell down. And I told the pastor, I looked back, he's like, just keep rolling, just keep rolling, we're good. I'll oh, be fine. And they literally dragged him off. And we continued and uh, made it through the ceremony. Then we were pronounced husband and wife. You know, we exited the church. And um, that was back when people were getting married in churches. A lot of young people now want to find a venue. Uh, but we got married in a church. And then we were off to Kauai for our honeymoon. I got the worst sunburn I've ever had, which is never a good idea on your honeymoon. Uh, it's like second degree burns, it felt like. It's like... Just a side note, wear sunscreen. It's good for you, like, you know, when you're fair. And uh, over the past 31 years, I've learned and experienced and continue to learn several things about myself. And maybe you've learned those things in your time of being married as well. Some things you really don't want to learn about yourself, such as I'm learning that I can actually be selfish. Oh, that's surprising. <laughs> so surprising. 
that I can be prideful? I'm so humble and proud of it. Like I can be, I can be prideful. <laughs> I'm learning how stubborn in my flesh I can be. I'm finding out that although I communicate for a, a living, I'm not that great of a communicator sometimes. I'm not always super sensitive like I should be. I'm learning that I'm not as much as a servant as I would like to be. And I'm not as godly and as spiritual as I want to be. Here's what I've learned ultimately. I, I realize that I need the power of the Holy Spirit. If I'm to love my wife as Christ loved the church, and if she's to respond to me as her husband, we need the Holy Spirit. You know, being a husband, being a father, and being a grandfather, being a Christian is impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. That's what Jesus told us. In our flesh dwells no good thing. And in in order to have a successful marriage, then we need to use the tools that God gives us to be able to build. We have to have a solid foundation. And unless we choose to build on the Lord, then we could end up like the 60% of people who are getting married today, ending in divorce. People on their second, third, fourth marriages. It's tragic. But if we build with the materials and the tools that the Lord has provided, then that won't be our story. Tonight, I want to start by, I figure, hey, it's Friday. Let's start with Song of Solomon 4. If you have a Bible, turn there. As we're going to discuss together the subject of intimacy in marriage. Whoa, suddenly all the men are like, oh, wow, okay, where's Song of Solomon? Where is that? It's exciting. (laughs) Intimacy in marriage, yes. Song of Solomon you know, in 1 Kings, the book of 1 Kings chapter 4, the Bible tells us that King Solomon wrote 3,000 proverbs and 1,005 songs. It's quite the discography. And of his entire selection of sonnets, the greatest single ballad of all time, the number one hit, wonder, went platinum, gold, etc., it's the Song of Solomon. That was the number one. And one of the reasons for its reputation as the song of songs is probably the content. It is a love song. In fact, there are those through the years who have sought to avoid this book. There are theologians in times gone by, like Origen and Jerome, that said a person should not read the Song of Solomon until 30 years of age. Others suggested that the song wasn't for public reading in mixed congregation or even private reading for the impure of heart. It's a pretty heavy book. On the other hand, many have come to appreciate this book of the Old Testament. It was a favorite book of D.L. Moody, favorite book of Charles Spurgeon. Uh, The Puritan preacher John Gill wrote 122 sermons on the Song of Solomon. The book itself is comprised of 117 verses and 470 Hebrew words, 47 of which are exclusive to this book. The book provides clarity in the midst of a world that is confused about marriage, the the prevalence of divorce, and and the modern attempts to redefine marriage stand in glaring contrast to Solomon's song. God ordained and blessed marriage even before the fall of man. Marriage is something designed by God and therefore to be celebrated. And this blessing from the Lord is to be enjoyed and even revered. Now as you read through this love ballad, we're going to take a few verses but what you're going to find is it's actually a duet. Don't you love duets? You're saying, back and forth. They're going back and forth. Solomon's singing. And then you've got the Shulamite woman is singing. And there's even some background singers in here called the Daughters of Israel. They sing as well. 
The song captures this love between two people that is growing and developing through the years. And there are verses in the song where the Shulamite sings about her insecurities and then the king counters with a powerful chorus of his love which brings the bride to a place of peace and rest. And so it opens in verse 1 and in verse 7. I want you to see. He says, Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You are, verse 7, all fair, my love, and there is no spot in you. At this point, listen, the couple has gone through the season of courtship, the engagement. They've gone through all of it, the elaborate marriage, the king and queen. They've gone through the, you know, the first dance. They've gone through the, the, you know, the speeches, the toasts, everything. They've gone through the whole ceremony. They've run through the labyrinth of all their friends with sparklers or rice or whatever their bubbles or whatever. Now they're, now they're on their way to their honeymoon. Do you remember that? Do you remember that? The reception, you're like, can we just leave now? You just want to get out of there. Like you smiled so much, your face hurt, and you're just like, can we leave? Let's leave. You remember? I remember that. There's one picture of me and my wife right before we're in the car. We're driving. I was like, like, I just wanted this lady to stop taking pictures of us so we could leave. You remember that? That's where they are. And now this song, oh man, get ready. It takes an intimate turn. Perhaps a saxophone solo. The lights go down. The king and his Shulamite wife begin singing of their intimate love for one another. And the lyrics, they're not defiling like so many today. They're not distasteful. There's no vulgarity. There's no degrading profanity. This ballad is not laced with lust. Instead, the lines resonate with beautiful, tender, genuine, heartfelt, and holy love. Intimacy in marriage is a very serious and sensitive subject to consider. It's important to understand that the sexual relationship was designed by God. The Bible says a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That speaks of the intimate relationship there in Genesis chapter 2. Anything outside of that is not God's purpose. It's not God's plan. In fact, any sexual relationship outside the marriage is sin. You end up reaping what you've sown. The Bible warns us concerning these things. And the Bible also tells us that as it relates to this aspect of our relationship, that intimacy within a marriage is not, listen carefully, it's not an option, it's not an extra, but rather it is a vital part of our connection to our spouse. God never intended for you to be celibate in your marriage, but to be intimate in your marriage. A marriage without intimacy is a marriage that is in trouble. The Lord never meant for you as a couple to live in separate bedrooms, to be roommates, to order bunk beds. That is not God's design. It's just not part of the plan. If you order two rooms as a couple here tonight, we're going to pray for you afterwards. You come forward. We're going to talk to you and pray for you. Pastor Zach will. Sadly, that's what some marriages have been reduced to, a contractual agreement. A financial dependence, sharing the rent, the mortgage, or whatever, only to only have to communicate when it's necessary. And what ends up happening is people stay together, perhaps for the children, or they can't afford to leave. That's not God's intention. Other people use intimacy as a weapon to fight with instead of a tool to build with. They deprive one another, manipulate the other person, they neglect each other. Each partner feels justified in their bitterness. They have their reasons. There's no forgiveness. It leads to depriving, neglecting, and that, that's not what God intended for marriage either. And so throughout this chapter, we're going to observe just a, some a few biblical principles, practices that can apply to this area of your marriage. First of all, loving affirmation. You'll notice in the area of marital intimacy, 
There has to be loving affirmation. Solomon expresses this when he says that you are fair, my love. When he says that she is fair, he, he's, not, he's not saying you're adequate. You're all right, girl. You're, you're, all, you're all right. The word fair doesn't mean adequate or okay. It means beautiful. It means excellent. He says it twice for emphasis and reassurance. The groom wants his bride to know how he sees her. He understands she needs to feel secure in his love before there is ever any intimacy. If you look at previous chapters in the Song of Solomon, you'll read of the bride, how she struggled in the area of personal self-image, how she saw herself. She didn't necessarily see herself as fair or beautiful, but she said, I'm, I'm average. And yet to the king, he loved her, he found her beautiful, and he declares his feelings toward her. And by the way, this wasn't the first time he said this to her. He told her before. In other words, he didn't tell her she was beautiful only when he desired something from her. Actually, he affirms his love for her, and it's worth noting, he refers to her as my love. It's possessive. There's no one else. I love this because so often what you can see in this picture between the king and his bride is something we can see with our king of kings, and we're the bride. How he sees us, how the Lord looks at you tonight with eyes of love. The Lord doesn't say to you, I love you but, or I love you if, or I love you when. No, he says, I love you. That, that settles it. That's how he sees us tonight. But within this process of intimate connection between husband and wife, there is, a, there is a display of patience. The king takes time to make his bride feel secure as he comments on eight qualities, eight of her person. Tells her that she's beautiful. Let's look at these together, shall we? He begins by saying, you have, check this out. He comments on her eyes. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. Your teeth, they're like a flock of shorn sheep, which have come up from the washing. Every one of them bears twins, and none is barren among them. I mean, listen to that. Man. He begins by commenting on her eyes that, that were behind the veil, which tells me something. It tells us that he was looking into her eyes. He didn't quickly rush into the intimate experience He's actually taking time to patiently consider his wife to see who she is as a person. Do you know what color your wife's eyes are? I hope you don't look now. You, you need to know. <laughs> Suddenly men are like, oh, oh, I think I know. Looking into her eyes, he has nothing to hide. There's nothing to hide. There's no deceit there. A person who can't look you in the eye, that's concerning. They can't look you in the eye. It's always like, well, you know, something's wrong. What's wrong with that? Why don't you look me in the eye? Sometimes there's dishonesty. But he looks right into her eyes. You know, Jesus said that the lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, if your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. In a previous chapter, the king likened the Shulamite's eyes to, to dove's eyes. Dove's eyes. It was the rabbinic teaching that emphasized that beautiful eyes are a sign of beautiful character. Doves, interestingly enough, are one of the rare species of birds that will mate for life. How do you like that? Scripture, in Scripture, doves remind us of a few things. They remind us of innocence. Jesus said, be wise as serpents, be harmless as doves, be innocent as doves. Doves are small birds characterized by tranquility, symbolic of gentleness, softness, peace. I think of Jesus being baptized there at the Jordan and a dove descending upon him. He just looks into her eyes and he can just see something. And he takes note of it and he mentions it. There's trust there. The next thing he compliments is her hair. Look at what he says about her hair. Ladies, look at this. 
Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. Now, I'm sure when she heard these words, she thought, that is the sweetest thing that anyone has ever said to me. I'm, I'm flattered. Thank you. As most of us would be. But though a goat's hair isn't the most refined, Arabian goats have long, wavy black hair, and they grazed in the mountains, and they were considered a thing of beauty. Their ebony coats would shine in the sunlight, blanketing a hillside. And as the groom looks at the flowing locks of his love, he comments on the beauty of her hair. Now, maybe you don't say your hair is like goat's hair, but maybe you say to your wife, I love the way your hair smells. Or, man, I can tell there's no split ends. I mean, I don't know what you're going to say. It's, you know, how attention to detail. Or I like the color now that you have. And by the way, men, if you don't notice the color when she comes through and she's been to the salon, intimacy is not, it's just out the door. You have to pay attention to these things. You messed up. Attention to detail. When it comes to his beloved, he pays attention. He comments on it. There's this, there's this the point is loving affirmation. But also he comments on her teeth. Interesting. He says, your teeth, they're like a flock of shorn sheep, which have come up from the washing. Everyone bears twins and none is barren among them. Praise God. <laughs> Keep in mind the audience. Listen, in ancient times, uh, they were tough on their teeth. All right? It's not like they had orthodontists. You know, you could just go see them if something came out. It wasn't uncommon for people in this culture to have teeth missing. And so the king notices that his bride has all her teeth, and he's thankful. (laughs) Aren't you glad he didn't say to her, your tooth, singular, (laughs) is like a sheep. And I can tell that you've been flossing it. I mean, no, he doesn't say that. That would be, that'd be messed up. No, he said, you have a full set, praise God. They're washed, which is also means she was hygienically together. Hygiene goes a long way. Then he comments on her lips. He said, your lips are like a strand of scarlet and your mouth is lovely. Oh. The Shulamite's lips are naturally a healthy color, which Solomon describes like like scarlet. The the king is taking her in. He's appreciating all of her qualities, taking nothing for granted, even noticing, listen, the loveliness of her mouth. You know, we use our mouth, our lips, to communicate how we speak to one another. The Bible has much to say about the words that we speak, how they can have a direct impact on the intimate relationship we have with one another. A verbally abusive person forcefully criticizes, insults, denounces a person, and to do this to your spouse is damaging, so damaging to say the least. Your communication shouldn't be characterized by underlying anger and hostility or profanity, which is destructive with the intention to harm the other person, producing negative emotions. That type of behavior will crush any desire for intimacy. The Bible instructs us in our speech, says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer, Psalm 19. The Bible says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit, Psalm 34, 13. 
In the New Testament, in Colossians chapter 4, Paul said, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer each one. He said, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers, Ephesians 4, 29. Hey, what kind of communication are you having with your spouse? Is there a culture and environment of encouragement? Do you build one another up? Are you tearing one another down? Solomon lovingly affirmed his wife through the words that he spoke. Often the words that flow from our lips is evidence of what's going on in our heart. And if what is coming out of your mouth is something that is degrading and um, tearing someone down, it's an indication of, of, of what's going on in your heart. And there is a cure for that. The Bible tells us in Psalm 119, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Placing God's word into your heart, the word coming out because the word is going in. But next, Solomon comments on her countenance. He seems to be complimenting her rosy complexion. He says to her, your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. Oh, so sweet. In previous chapter, he had, she had mentioned her complexion and that she, was, she said she was tanned and undesirable. But her groom saw her skin color as desirable. He called it delectable fruit. You know, when I think of the temple, it, it makes me think of the, the mind. I think of the mind of a person. Isn't the mind a battleground for so many believers today? Majority of our fears, our worries, our discontentment, it starts up in the mind. The Bible tells us to gird up the loins of our mind, to be sober, to be vigilant, to, to rest our hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ, filling our minds with things that are pure and undefiled, Bible says whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise. Think about these things. And as you, you set your mind on these things, that affects your relationship with one another. Solomon continues to describe the Shulamite in an intimate and wonderful detail. And he says, your neck is like the Tower of David, built for an armory on which hang a thousand bucklers, all the shields of mighty men. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. In reference to her neck, some suggest that Solomon is commenting on the accessories of the bride in the form of a necklace. You know, many women like to accessorize, wearing necklaces, headbands, earrings, etc. But I wonder if a husband, in general, if we ever comment on our wife's accessories. I should say, I, I need to comment on that more. I need to be more aware of that. Actually, there's a, can I just say there's a right way to comment on those and a wrong way to comment on those. As a husband, if you say something like, where did you get that? What did I, why is there so many Amazon packages? You know, like, where did that come from? You know, suddenly, whoa, you know, it just doesn't go well. It never goes well. Or another way to say it would be, I've never seen that before you know what? You should wear that more often. That looks so beautiful. The tower Solomon speaks of metaphorically. It ref represents and references a military arsenal, a landmark in Israel that's actually described in Nehemiah chapter three. Your neck, man, it's like a tower. You're a strong woman. Man, I'm impressed. He's just admiring her. Mighty warriors in time of peace would hang their shields upon the walls in show of allegiance to the king. Solomon is describing some kind of stately elegance 
of his bride's neck, beautifully layered with a necklace that adorned it. In the king's eyes, the bride was a picture of strength and character. Do you appreciate being built up? Does it encourage you when somebody says something to you, they recognize a strength in your life and they affirm that? All of us appreciate that. We, we need to be doing that for our husbands and wives. Sometimes we can forget. We can take it for granted and, and we, we just assume the other person should know by now. Well, it needs to be said. As much as you need to hear it, they need to hear it. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Affirmation becomes more and more important the longer we go in marriage. We get older. We need to continue to affirm our love for one another. And so this is important. So, uh, Solomon just continues to bless her with loving affirmation. But the second thing I see in this, what makes intimacy work, that was the first thing. There's a lot there. Loving affirmation. But the second thing that stands out to me as it relates to effective and godly intimacy, healthy intimacy in a relationship, is patient consideration. You, you look at verse 6. Notice what he says here. Patient consideration. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. Now, when Solomon says, until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, it's as if he's saying, there's nowhere else that I'd rather be. He's not distracted. He's not in a hurry. But he is patient, gentle toward his bride. He's connected to his wife mentally, spiritually, and physically. He made her feel secure in his love. Long before they were together in an intimate setting, Solomon complimented eight parts of his bride's body. And though we don't exactly know what the Shulamite looked like, we don't have an eight by 10 glossy of this girl, but we get a sense of what she looked like to Solomon. He patiently took time. And then he tells her, you are all fair. There it is again. You are all fair, verse seven, my, my love. And, and there is no spot in you. The word spotless means you're without defect. In his eyes, the Shulamite was perfect, without blemish, without stain. Through his eyes of love, the, the groom saw his bride as spotless, made for him. The king overlooked any flaws of his beloved. His banner over her was love. You know, the Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4, in verse 8, it says, Above all, keeping love for one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Listen. When you're married, <clears throat> you know your spouse better than anybody else. You know their weaknesses. You know the things that bug you, maybe that other people don't know about. I mean, you just, you just know each other better than, than anybody else knows you. And yet, even though we all have flaws and shortcomings, we need to see each other through the eyes of Jesus. How do you see your bride? How do you see your groom? We're spotless in his eyes because of the blood of Jesus. And so we need to see one another in that way. He reaffirms with this patient, just drawing her in, letting her know how he sees her. But then I also see that there is real security in the consummation, that is in coming together. If you'll notice here, verse 8, he says, come with me from Lebanon, my spouse, with me from Lebanon. Look from the top of Amana, from the top of Sinir and Hermon. From the lion's den, from the mountains of the leopards. Interesting. When you look at these verses, some suggest that when the king asked her to come with him from the heights of Hermon into the den of the lions, into the mountain of leopards, that these things represented scary places, perhaps her fears. Solomon is asking his bride to come away with him and to calm her fears. He's saying, come with me 
I'm, I'm going to protect you. I'm, I'm with you. We're together in this. He's helping her again to feel secure in his love so that she's not afraid. In the area of intimacy, fears can arise about oneself, about the other person. As you become completely vulnerable and the king is saying to his bride that he loves, come with me where you'll be safe. It's important to provide security in that intimate setting to assure the other person. There's, there's no abuse. There's nothing inconsistent. There's nothing wrong. Nothing unbiblical. God designed men and women with particular needs that they are unable to meet on their own. Thus, God created marriage in part to allow the husbands and wives to meet the needs of one another. One of a woman's greatest need is for security, to be in a secure environment and one in which she's married to a man that's sacrificial, that's sensitive. Of course, Jesus is the prime example of this. But we want our wives to feel secure. We want our husbands to feel secure, ladies, and, and our love for them and your love for them. The Bible says there's no fear in perfect love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who, has, who fears has not been made perfect in love. How important it is. You know, again, I can't help but think, I think about Jesus speaking to us. Come with me, come with me. Whether it's, it's to, the, to the heights or to the depths, I'm gonna be with you. I'm gonna be with you. There's security in God's love for me. The Bible says that he hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. 2 Timothy 1, 7. As long as Jesus is present, we know we're gonna be all right. Solomon helped his bride to feel secure in the consummation. That is in them coming together as husband and wife. And then he says in verse nine, notice this, as the song goes on, he says, you have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You have ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. How fair is my love? How, how my, my sister, my spouse, how much better than wine is your love and the scent of your perfumes than all the spices? When the king tells the Shulamite that she has ravished his heart, one translation reads, you have stolen my heart. My heart belongs to you. In the Hebrew culture and language, the, the heart represents the inner person. The Shulamite had captured the very essence of the king. A proper biblical view of intimacy and marriage always focuses on the spouse's well-being and pleasure above one's own. It is a very servant-minded relationship. And after Solomon affirms his love, calms her fears, invites her into intimacy, Note that he doesn't make demands on her, but he actually offers her an invitation so she'll feel safe. And she reciprocates that love back to him because of the environment that is created in that vulnerable space of intimacy. Remember, within the intimate relationship between husband and wife, again, lies the principles, loving affirmation. And it starts long before you enter into an intimate time together. It starts long before that. In addition to loving affirmation, there's patient consideration of the other person. Sometimes timing is off. For guys, it's always time. But for ladies, it's not always that way. Amen? I mean, that's just how it is. That's just a fact. We need to be sensitive to timing. Patient consideration of the other's needs. And then security. When you come together, there's a trust, which leads, of course, then to passionate enjoyment. For it says here, how fair, verse 10, how fair is your love, much better than wine. I like that. It's better than any, anything else, this relationship. Then all your lips, oh my spouse, they drip as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue and the fragrance of your garments. It's like the fragrance of Lebanon. God never intended for intimacy within the marriage to be a burden 
The whole experience was intended to be a blessing from the Lord. And you can see by this depicting this passion and enjoyment that all the senses are firing. He speaks of sight, smell, touch, taste, all of it was from the Lord. This is what God had designed in the marital relationship. Intimacy, for it to be all that God intended, what is to be experienced? Security, passion, enjoyment, affirmation, refreshing, fruitful. It's supposed to be holy. That's what God designed it for. In fact, Solomon describes it here. We're almost through, but notice this. He says in verse 12, I want you to see this. He says, a garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, fragrant henna with spikenard, spikenard, and saffron, calamus, and cinnamon with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh, and aloes with all the chief spices, a fountain of gardens, a well of, look at this, of living waters, streams from Lebanon. If you know anything about Solomon's life, you know he had wisdom that exceeded in every area, including botany, this guy could grow anything, beautiful hanging gardens, tapped into water sources. He was skilled in so many areas. And now as he's referencing a garden, seven times, by the way, in this Song of Solomon, he references a garden. He's talking about the relationship. I don't know if you have any gardeners here, you like to grow things or whatever, but you know something about gardening. It takes work. It takes investment. There's uprooting of things that, that can easily choke out something that's, that's growing that could be beautiful, but for some reason, some, some weed, some, some vermin, some other you know, insect has killed it, choked out what was coming up and what was being beautiful. So it takes attention and to detail and uprooting and then watering and planting and replanting and soiling. All of that is so important. Solomon looks at the relationship with his wife and says, it's like a garden. I'm attentive to it. And when I come into this garden that I've cultivated, we've cultivated through this relationship of intimacy, there's beautiful things that God is doing. And, and as you read this, he lists some of the, the most rarest, expensive, sought-after plants and flowers and spices, and he compares all of these things to the relationship with his bride. He, they are fruitful in their relationship. Intimacy in a marriage, to be all that God intended it to be, it takes work. And also you find that this, he sets boundaries. He said, she's a garden enclosed. This is for us and us alone. There's certain things about your marriage that belong between you two, period. And nobody else gets beyond that point. No one else is allowed in. Not someone you're emotionally drawn to in a relationship via a text who's not your spouse. Some email exchange on some app that you swiped and you felt, this person really gets me. They don't get you. They don't know you. They never washed your clothes. They know nothing about you. You're crazy. You know, you have to be careful of that. It takes work. It takes, it takes time. Because you don't want the garden to be wrecked or trampled underfoot. And so you set boundaries of fidelity and privacy and exclusivity for you and your spouse alone. It takes maintenance. It takes care. And you know, things change too when you get older. You know, I've noticed um, just in pastoring for 30 years um, and just sitting down with countless couples who are in good shape, you know, premarital counseling, postmarital counseling, post-traumatic marital counseling. I mean, I've, we've done it all, <laughs> everything. <laughs> and just in watching through the years, and, and I've noticed, you know, sometimes when you get a little bit older, you know, there's just seasons when you're married. You know, Michelle and I are now 31 years in, and... Uh, 
you know, we've grown a lot. We're still growing. But, you know, you, you go, you're having kids and starting your family. We have four kids. Raising these kids and you're just trying to, you know, hang on and navigate the ship. And like, hey, Ben, let's keep, you know, you know, just get them through diapers. And then you get them through elementary. And then you get them through junior high. Oh, and then you get through high school. You're like, ah. And then you get through college. Like, how are we going to pay for that? You know, and all of these things that are just like, you're just holding on, man. You know, you're just holding on. This is me, by the way, on a ship, just taking, just navigating. That's, if you know. Like, what is he doing up there? I don't know. And, you know, you just hang on. And then, and then, then your kids, you know, then they get married. And then, then they start having grandkids. It's like, oh, we made it. Ah, this is so awesome. You know, you just love it. And, and, but it takes work. And, you know, I've noticed with some guys and, and gals, too, where something happens. I'm just going to be bold. Uh, and clear if I haven't already, but I think sometimes when you go through life changes, a wife hits menopause, or I like to call it man on pause. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Beep. (laughs) So, all right, that's cool. So how long does this normally take? I mean, I just, okay. Who knew what a hot flash was, right? Am I right? It's crazy stuff. I mean, I didn't know that. I never read a book. And then you, then you, you, know, then you get older as a man. You're going through some things. You think about medication. I mean, what, what is going on, you know? It's a new season in life. And, and what happens is if you haven't been cultivating something up to that point, if it's just all about the kids, and I've seen when, then the kids get out, and then the wife starts going through some things and, and experiencing some things that are difficult. And then the husband's like, he doesn't know what his purpose is anymore. He's not coaching. He's not, you know, what am I doing? What am I, what is my existence? Like, that's your wife. Oh, yeah, my wife. You know, like you forgot. Like, <laughs> and if you haven't been cultivating and working in the garden and uprooting, then, then there's really not a lot of fruit. And, and you start to grow apart. And now that the kids are gone, now you can do what you want, you know. You can go, you know, play your rounds of golf because no one's calling you every second for you to come in. And, you know, you can go do this with the ladies because, you know, you don't have to worry about, like, and you start to, grow, you have to, you have to, you can't let that happen. You got to cultivate that, that garden. And I want to tell you, I, I, there's something here in this passage and that I think is this, it's the secret. <laughs> it's not a real secret, but kind of, but look at this. Look at what it says. You say, well, how can I, maybe, maybe the garden isn't doing well. <laughs> maybe some, some things are, you know, dying on the vine. We need to do something. What do, what do you do? Oh, look at verse 15. A fountain of gardens, a well of living waters and streams from Lebanon. Folks, when I read that, I realize things can't grow without water in a physical sense. I mean, they're supposed to have water. You water a tree, whatever, it grows. But in a spiritual sense, without living water, things don't really... What do you mean living water? Oh, Jesus spoke to a woman there in John chapter 4. She had been in so many different relationships. She was miserable. She came and Jesus said, hey, listen, if you drink from this well, you're going to thirst again. But if you drink of the water that I shall give you, you'll never thirst again. He talked about living water. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. 
Later on in John chapter 7, on the last day of the feast, Jesus stood up and he said, anybody that's thirsty here, let them come unto me. And out of his innermost being will, will flow torrents of living water. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Guys, listen, if things are dying, if things are in the garden, if you look around the garden and go, what are we doing? How did these weeds get here? How did that happen? Where'd that come from? How come we don't? Listen, what we need is living water. We need to invite the Holy Spirit into this relationship again. We need to bring the Holy Spirit back to the forefront of this relationship. This is a threefold cord. It's not easily broken. It's you. It's your spouse. It's Jesus wrapping the whole thing up. It's, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what we want. This is what we need. Be continually being. You notice in Ephesians, when Paul talks about marriage, before he gets to the whole marriage part, he talks about be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. Then he goes down and says, now wives, submit your husbands, love your wives like Christ in the church. He talks about the work of the Spirit even before he talks about marriage. That's so important. People trying to, to cultivate something without the work of the Spirit, and, and you see the lack of fruit. But Jesus said, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, you will bear much fruit in every area especially your marriage. Are you abiding? Husbands, are you reading your Bible? Are you abiding? Are you being continually filled with the Spirit? That's the only way we're going to have the fruits of the Spirit, which is to love. Wives, are you in the Word of God daily? Have you replaced that with something else? And, and so you find that there's just things dying on the vine because there's no source. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If we're connected, then we're going to continue to bear much fruit. It's the, the key to this intimacy, the key to the whole relationship continuing to be this enclosed garden that the, the Lord can just walk through and see the fragrance and the beauty of what's been cultivated by two people who are passionate about their relationship with God and in turn loving one another to becoming one. God is pleased with it because of the fact that the Spirit of God is involved. Have you allowed that? Is that still happening? If it isn't, man, it's time to get back to that. It's time to remember. It's time to return. It's not too late. The living water. Allow that to flow in and through your lives again. In your relationship, personally, here's what I've discovered about marriage and being married, that when this relationship is where it needs to be with Jesus, I'm much better on every other relationship. If things are out of alignment here with the Lord, it's not always in alignment with my wife. And maybe you want to blame your spouse for, you know, and of all the reasons why you're the way that you are, because they are the way. If they weren't the way that they were, you would not be the way that you are. And we all have times where we'd like to justify our flesh. But the fact is, um, I need to take ownership for it. I need to repent. And where I have been, where I've been insensitive, where I have not been lovingly affirming, where I have been missing, I, I need to repent. I just need to say, I'm sorry. And then you need to forgive and then you need to go on. And you need to cultivate these things again. It's time to do some gardening, folks, <laughs> in a manner of speaking. Get back to it. Allow the Spirit of God to just do something fresh once again. You'll notice last verse, verse 16, he says here, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden. Let the spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat of its pleasant fruit. Solomon and the Shulamite, they're now cultivation in this private enclosed space, allowing the spirit of God to water us with living water. What ends up happening? He talks about this wind blowing in, coming through. It reminds me again, I just think of the Holy Spirit. I think of when they were in the upper room. It says they were waiting and, and they were praying and the, like a rushing wind, the spirit of God just came through and, and new things began to break forth. And in these days, 
That's what would happen as well. The intimate connection that Solomon had with the Shulamite woman, his bride, was a connection long before they ever entered into a bedroom. They, they had a connection long before that. And the Shulamite responded to the love of the king because he made her feel secure, cared for, appreciated. She then opened herself up to him and the relationship was blessed. Listen, married couples, if you have let the garden go and you've been producing bitter fruit instead of sweet, the Lord can rain down upon those parched areas and bring healing to everything it touches. Living water, it produces life, restoration, new growth, new things. The Lord is the one who is the expert in marriage and how to love each other because the Bible says that God in his nature, in his character, God is what? Love. So if God is love, he can help me, teach me how to love my spouse if I'm open, if I'm willing. There may be some things, you know, that you may need to say to your spouse while you're on this retreat that you haven't said in a while. Just have an honest conversation and be transparent and maybe just say, you know what, I'm sorry, I'd love to, I'd love to start anew. I'd like, I, wanna, I wanna begin to cultivate some things in our relationship with one another. Let's invite the spirit of God in. And also your hair is like a flock of one sheep, I suppose. <laughs> Great one-liners for husbands and wives. Hey, let's pray together tonight. I'm gonna invite the worship team up. Father, we do thank you this evening that, Lord, you're the one who designed marriage. You created it. Lord, we're, we need you. Lord, there's no perfect marriage, but you are a perfect God. And you've provided with us, for us, all things that pertain to life and godliness, your word says. And Lord, where we have been neglectful or indifferent or just kind of accepting of things where, where you, you want things to change. I pray, God, you just begin to work. Lord, let the living water of the Spirit of God just move among us tonight. Lord, move in my heart, God. Continue to work in me. Lord, I pray that we would just open ourselves up to the work of the Spirit. And just even now, as we're just in that, that attitude of prayer, just speak to the Lord in private, in, your, in the quietness of your heart. Holy Spirit, reveal to me what you want me to change. And I guarantee you, if you ask that question, he will speak, if you will listen, and then respond, and go forward with the Lord, and go forward together. Whatever season you're in, 